0: Welcome to another episode of the deadhead cannabis show i'm larry michigan of michigan law in chicago i have my co-host rob hunt with me today and uh rob i gotta tell you there's very few things that are as great as going to a grateful dead show mid to late 80s up into the 90s uh then seeing a jack straw opener you know jerry's fresh coming right onto the stage for the first time all night bobby's got a lot of that pent up energy and they just really release and let go and if I'm not mistaken, you were at the show where they played this version of it. So, why don't you give us a little information on it? Yeah, I was. That was
1: um, a three-night run at the Oakland Coliseum celebrating Chinese New Year in uh, January of 1993. And uh, you know, for anyone that's been to those runs, is depending on the year, either a Mardi Gras run or a Chinese New Year run, uh, both would always have a parade on the actual day of either Fat Tuesday or on the um, you know the Chinese New Year itself. I love the Chinese New Year shows because they had you know dragon parade going through. There's a huge Asian community or Chinese community in the Bay Area, uh, so they get tons and tons of people to participate. It was just such a. a yeah, I saw two Chinese New Years um, in Oakland, really really fun. And you know, I gotta say that Jack's openers at that time, it, it's such a rocker. It's such a great way to open it, but it doesn't start off as a rocker the way like a Shakedown does or a Bertha does or you know some other ones. It kind of leads into you know just building up, building up until you hit the uh, the part of the show or part of the song that we just listened to, which is blistering licks coming out of Garcia, that really set the tone for the night. So, you know, it was the first song I ever saw the Grateful Dead play live and you know, remains one of my favorites ever since.
0: Excellent. Well, we will be getting to that show uh, in a little more detail shortly. Um, so please stay tuned for talk on that and uh, other interesting uh, Grateful Dead and musical items we have today. Uh, but let's start off on the marijuana side today robin there's a lot going on in the marijuana world which makes our show easy to do but uh, stuff that's interesting to talk about and as we kind of launch here into 2022 the first uh, matter in which i get a lot of questions from people are where is the market going to expand to what states are next and, um, our friends over at MJ Biz have conveniently uh, uh, put out a very uh, good and interesting article if you're interested in going to take a look at it uh, that really lays it out on both the medical and the adult use side and, you know, once again, on on both sides, it's 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 great to see a couple of states that you might not otherwise have considered, right? Medical. We've got Kansas in play, Mississippi in play, South Carolina in play, North Carolina maybe, but I, I always think of North Carolina as being a little more cosmopolitan in the South. Uh, but even still, you know, the fact that these states are, are talking about going medical uh, is incredible. Of course, as we all know, right, Mississippi's been the the lone site for the last however many years where the government has its own uh, marijuana farm and uh, any tests or studies or anything they do, and the, the ever dwindling number of lucky few who got into the program and get their free joints sent to them by the government periodically. And now Mississippi's going to do it the right way. And, uh, you know, be very interesting to see how these states that are primarily composed of, you know, what I would say right leaning and, uh, you know, more conservative populations. What we've seen up to this point, Rob, suggests to me uh, that that those states should probably pass uh, pretty easily. What do you think? I think all those states should, but, you know,
1: if there's one that's an X factor, it's definitely Mississippi. Anyone that's familiar with, you know, Tate Reeves as governor of that state, uh, he, he's an unpredictable guy. So do I think that, you know, it's a foregone conclusion that Tate's going to sign on to the devil's weed? You know, just because Ole Miss does it uh, from a federal standpoint, that's um, very much under lock and key and has been for, you know, close to 40 years. But uh, – but for Tate to say, we're going to open up a real medical program, yeah, you know, I'm not really buying it any more than I did when Nathan Deal came out and said they are going to do something in Georgia, which ended up being walked back completely to a CBD-only law that ultimately um, – you know, had no means of production. So, you know, I'll believe it in Mississippi when I see it. Until then, you know, I, th- I think South Carolina, definitely North Carolina, that's not a problem. We'll see about Kansas also. Kansas, you know, pretty pretty conservative, definitely a strong out.
0: Well, Kansas would be significant just for the reason that Kansas and Nebraska have long been known as the uh, uh, either I-70 or I-80, depending on which one you're going through, you know, states of horror for people coming out of Colorado who've gone there for vacation or whatever. And happened to have stocked up on a little bit extra to take back east with them and some of those you know, those states have used uh, you know practices that have already been constitutionally approved by the Supreme Court where if you take every tenth car randomly uh, and just decide to pull it over and you know poke your nose around and ask a few questions you visit any dispensaries while you were there you pick anything up you try to bring anything home with you. And, uh, you know, they've got a nice little cottage industry going doing that. Well, that, that's not it, though, Larry. I mean, you, you know the deal. I mean, first of all,
1: let's be clear about this. It's, they can say it's randomly every 10th car. It's, it's every car with a Colorado license plate. Let's be clear about that. And for a long time, it was cars heading eastbound. And that no longer was the case once they realized the asset forfeiture laws worked in their favor, and they're much better off catching cars going westbound. Because going east, all you have to seize is weed. Going west, you've got money. Right. So t- you know, t- if you're talking about how to fund these police departments, you know, the major windfall, and then and here's the outrage. is Kansas and Nebraska then coming back going, oh, well, we've had to actually step up our law enforcement. It's been a great expense to our state, and it's an undue burden for our law enforcement. Nonsense. Colorado weed and in the, in the money that's, you know, busted coming back across your lines, even if you never even arrest and you just do an asset forfeiture of the cash, it's funded your police departments. And so for those guys to say it differently, it's so disingenuous because they love the cash that they've been able to seize for the last 15 years
0: coming out of Colorado. No question about it. No question about it. And and yes, uh, you know maybe I was too nice in giving them the benefit of the doubt in terms of uh, how they determine which cars they want to pull over, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, there's any one of a number of factors that you and I could go through and recite uh, that might not uh, make it in a court of law, but doesn't mean that that's not going to be the un- ultimate and underlying reason why somebody gets pulled over. Yeah, And you know as well as I do that between the
1: two, you know, police officers considered to be a credible witness. So you're going to put someone on the stand and say, well, how would you conduct this investigation? They say, oh, well, we just used the constitutionally approved practice of pulling over every 10th car and there's no rhyme or reason. You know, unless someone actually says, well, it seems like this random practice has pulled over 500 cars in a row with a green license plate, Colorado plates, and mountains on their plates. Like, is that a coincidence? Oh, yeah, it must be. You know, I'd say about every 10th car is, you know, it's Colorado, so it stands to reason. Like, yeah, you know, like it takes someone actually going in there and doing an investigation and saying, "Okay, well, let's see which cars have actually gotten pulled over." And I can all but assure you, based on the uh, the stories I've gotten living in Colorado, that it, it's you know no doubt targeted um, to a very specific group.
0: Yep, but. Now they're getting ready to at least say join the game, and I'm sure they'll come up with some excuse as to why it's okay to allow the sale. You know, well, now they'll be, it'll be a protectionist policy, right? Well, now we got to do it. We got to protect our young fledgling businesses here in Kansas. We can't have them competing with all that weed from from the West. Here's the thing, too, is you have to think both
1: those states, more uh, Missouri now, and Missouri actually has a very robust cannabis industry that's forming. So it's not just a question of it coming east from Colorado. Now, you know, if you think about like um, the, the most populous parts of uh, of Kansas. You Know, um, you know, Kansas City is actually in Missouri, but right across the border, you have Kansas City, Kansas, and you've got Overland Park, Kansas, and then that leads into Lawrence, Kansas. That's the major kind of population hub outside of Wichita in that state, and that's all right on the border of uh, of Missouri. And Missouri is certainly capitalizing on sending weed across the, the state, so it's not just diversion from from Colorado into Kansas, and that's true of Nebraska as well. I mean, Nebraska borders a handful of other states that uh, that have legal canvas. So, again, this you know. We always talk about it in the in the confines of like you know what does um, New Jersey legalizing cannabis mean for New York and Pennsylvania? But you forget that it also holds true for you know what is what is being bordered uh, on all sides in the Midwest mean for a state that's a holdout in Kansas? Eventually, they just have to look at it as a lost revenue opportunity.
0: I think you're right, and and that's a perfect swing over into looking at what this article has to say about the adult use market when we're, uh, certain states may. Uh, uh, try to go legal this year and you know not surprisingly there's Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Delaware, all eastern states uh, and each one of those states has at least one if not more states bordering it that does have a program already going right now uh, uh, maybe even an adult use program once New York actually gets online with what they're doing but that's in addition to Hawaii and Minnesota and Ohio you know typically a red state that uh, has been friendly uh, to marijuana you know on certain levels. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what we get here. But I think it's very significant that the majority of these states are east of the Mississippi and that that part of the market is really starting to expand. And I think everybody's going to see Hawaii and scratch their head because most people probably figure it's been legal in Hawaii for years.
1: <laughs> well, I think most people, if they actually understood the California market, would scratch their head even harder, you know, thinking that California has been legal for years and it's still on the municipal level largely illegal in this state. So wait until you start seeing. You know, some of these Midwestern states or Northeastern states have a much more permissive uh, set of laws than even California does. No surprise to me that you're watching a, a handful. And this is a very broad group of states that MJ Business came out and said, you know, expect to see. But, you know, don't be surprised when all of them go through very, very quickly. And don't be surprised when they've got relatively um, permissive uh, rules attached to them. So it's, if, if this list that, that we're looking at, Larry, goes through, then the feds have, they've got no choice but to act when you've got major population hubs such as Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, you know, going through on top of New York and New Jersey and a couple other major California. California. At that point, the, it, it's done. I don't care who's in control of the Senate. I don't care who's in control of the presidency. It's just it's too much at to that point when you've got that many uh, Americans with access to adult-use legal cannabis.
0: And again, you're absolutely right, Rabbi. I agree with everything you just said. And, and I just think it's important. You know, in our hyperpartisan state that the country is in right now, this is the topic that unites everybody. And there's just as many red states as blue states uh, that are getting ready to make this shift. And even though we've seen a pushback from a certain number of um, uh, Republican governors who have not been happy with the fact uh, that their state uh, uh, actually got a program passed and they want to try and push back on it. Uh, South Dakota being the most notorious at the moment, but that's just because of who the Governor is. Um, but this is great, you know what else you know you never hear Tucker Carlson railing about it. You never hear Rachel Maddow railing about it um well, for for the record, I never
1: hear Tucker Carlson railing about anything, so I'd never turn the guy on. so let's be <laughs> let's be clear that I will never listen to a word that comes out of that guy's mouth It is such nonsense. but you know, having said that on partisan basis. Maddow certainly is a, a relatively partisan uh, actor as well and you know you are right about that.
0: So, you know, it, it, it there's just there's such wonderful unity around it and unfortunately it's still so ostracized by mo- so many people uh, that no politician will be broad-minded enough or forward-thinking enough to adopt it as a way uh, to reunite the country let's just all get together be great marijuana manufacturers make a lot of money for everybody and get a good buzz on amen pretty easy to do it shouldn't be uh shouldn't be too difficult to implement you know if a couple of you know grateful dead nerds like you and i can think it up or talk about it certainly uh, uh the powers that be can figure it out too dude
1: i i i, I put this together in the parking lot of
0: 88. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what and I, I don't doubt that for a minute i'm sure you did I'm sure, you know, while the rest of us were walking around trying to figure out where we were going to get our mushrooms from, you were, like, putting together plans. Well, that's this is, you know, things things that um, you conceive on
1: nitrous oxide um, late in the evening. Uh, you come up with all sorts of brilliant ideas once the uh, once the wawas wear off. That's what
0: I've heard. But as everybody rushes, you know, to open these markets, you know, there's lessons out there that I think everybody needs to pay attention to. And as we turn to our second story, um, Robert, I'm going to turn to you because uh, this is more up your alley, but uh, right now we have analysts who are cutting hundreds of millions of dollars from Tilray, Canopy, and Aurora marijuana sale forecasts. I know we touched on this from a different angle last week, um, and maybe you can pick it up from there and let us know what it all means.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll expand on what I said last week, which is that, you know, no way not to say this offensively, but most analysts in the cannabis, or most analysts covering the cannabis industry fundamentally don't understand the market they're covering. You know, they they take a... They take the approach of as I said last week, if you build it, they will come, and that only is true if you have a total addressable market that can actually you know sustain the uh, the purchasing of whatever's produced and in the case of the Canadian market. It's just, it hasn't borne out. They overbuilt, they overspent, they did everything wrong. And the analysts bought into it for a long time. And they're finally coming off the sugar high that they had for three years to say, like, oh, wait, like, okay, we're not going to sell that much weed. And finally, like, we're starting to hear from the companies that there's no way they're going to hit their targets. So we've got to revise our earnings forecast, We've got to revise our uh, revenue forecasts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's bringing these guys back down to earth, which, you know, again, is, you know, kind of why we touched on Tilray last week. You know making purchases outside of the cannabis industry, and we're watching other other groups do that as well. You know, if they've got the capital sitting on their balance sheet and they know they're not going to make their money with you know with with acquisitions or expansion in cannabis, where are they going to put that money to work that actually is going to um, be profitable for that business? And very likely a lot of these groups are going to find ways to uh, to expand out of the industry, to become conglomerates that are more similar to, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a nabisco. Or a, a Unilever.
0: Look, you know, these are all good points. And, you know, as I read through this article again from our friends at MJ MJBiz, um, it, it's just fascinating to me because it, it, there's just so much in here, what you say, talking about other, you know, names that are probably recognizable for those who are involved in the investment banking industry. And, you know, people who are still, you know, sitting here would almost seem to me to be pie-in-the-sky numbers, you know, with the hopes and ideas of where this market is going to go. And I suppose at the end of the day, it would be wonderful if they're right, I just always worry about the uh, potential impact if you get enough investors who who invest enough money based on some of these uh, analysts reports that turn out not to be accurate and then people start losing money. does that ultimately make it more difficult for the smaller guys in the industry to be able to find outside money uh, the simple answer is
1: absolutely, and that 's you know what we saw happen in two thousand and nineteen where for the first you know, two quarters of the year, capital is relatively easy to come by, but once the uh, the Canadian market you know crashed its first real crash then uh, essentially, the you know the, the adage of rising tides float all boats, um, you know, a, a lowering tide sinks all ships, right? So it's you know there was a case of anyone that was underwater in their portfolio as a result of having these uh, inflated beliefs of what the Canadian market was going to do when the Canadian when the shine came off that one or you know the smell came off the rose or whatever analogy you want to use, then you know you saw people saying, okay, well I'm no longer going to uh, invest in cannabis because this dream is obviously not what it was cracked up to be. Without ever really objectively thinking about it and going, okay, well, do I think there's a California company that should theoretically be larger than Canopy Growth or larger than, um, than uh, Aurora? The answer is if you believe in the size of the market and you look total addressable market to total addressable market, uh, California should be a more interesting market. Simply because um, you, know, you can do a wholesale roll-up in that state where there are no barriers outside of municipal you know, changes. Whereas in Canada you're still dealing with provincial governments uh, acting as middlemen between the buyer and the seller, so there is no you know vertically integrated market that's you know seamless the way there is in california so it's you know, this idea that the Canadian market was so exciting based on federal leg- legality okay well, in California you 've got state legality without any federal intervention under um, the Gavin Newsom you know government. That should be just as exciting and and it's not, and the reason it's not is because people are smart enough to look at California and say that that's not you know a, a ten billion dollar market cap business in that market i don 't know why they thought differently of Canada
0: okay, but it's interesting that uh, uh one of the art uh, one of the companies they mentioned in here is Chilray because you know sliding right along you know another store we we're looking at, and we just talked about this last week. Uh, Tilray's venture outside of straight cannabis and into the alcoholic beverage industry and then uh just a day or two now another article drops showing that uh, uh Tilray and AB InBev have announced that their partnership or merger that they had been contemplating is now off the table what do you make of that it's not
1: surprising to me at all you know it's uh when you think that, that Tilray right now is making their own moves and they're buying Sweetwater and they're buying Breckenridge Distillery and they're buying other microbreweries, ultimately do they really need a fifty million dollars you know co partnership with AB InBev on a, on um, a drink manufacturer in the cannabis space? The answer is no. They already have the means of production to, to make whatever they want between their distiller and their brewers. They can enter multiple markets you know doing it that way. So is there any utility left in a association with uh, AB InBev? I would say that that was a, a decision that was probably uh, driven, You know, and I, I don't know this for sure, and if I did, I certainly couldn't reveal, but I think that that's a, um, a decision that would have been driven from the
0: C-suite of Tilray, not from AB InBev. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, in the article, and then again at the end, they also they throw in a little graph, at least for Canadian sales, that shows that of uh, all the various ways in which uh, people in Canada can purchase... Uh, THC, uh, that beverages is second from the bottom, that it only accounts for 2% of uh, of sales of cannabis products, only just slightly ahead of topicals. Uh, although it does, they say, represent an increase of 3%, but still, and I guess this isn't surprising, you know, and it always makes me happy, and nice to see that according to these statistics, that flour is still the leader in sales at 47% um, and is, is almost double Uh, the next one in line which is pre-rolls which of course is just another version of flour for people that are too lazy to roll their own joints so you know that 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 comprises uh, between the two of them almost a 70 percent of the market share for Canada and um, you know I hope that means we're going to have you know some good flour still being grown for a long time and everybody's not immediately running out to extracts and edibles and and all that kind of stuff. A news flash for anyone out there
1: Flour is and will be for a long time king. And for all you people that think that other form factors are going to continue to chip away at market share, I hear it every year. And every year, the numbers come back roughly the same. So it's, um, you know, until social consumption happens, nobody cares about beverage. They really don't. I mean, it's like, it's great that there's some really good beverage products out there in the market. It's good that, you know, people are starting to do really low dose, um, you know, two and a half milligram THC versions of beverages. But if you don't have a place where you can sit around and hang out with your buddies and consume it in a public setting, that's not the form factor you're going to use. And nobody, nobody I know would ever consider, like, okay, let's you know, let, let's crack a beverage and share it. It doesn't have the same you know, appeal as smoking a joint or of, uh, packing a bowl or packing bong hits. It just doesn't exist. Flowers king. Flowers going to remain king. There's no terpene profile involved in the beverage. There's nothing else that really like separates it. There's no bag appeal. All the things that really make um, cannabis interesting
0: do not exist in the beverage. I also see it, you know, as you know, since you you are ingesting it like you would any other food product. I, I see it as an offshoot of edibles. I also see it as the easiest of all edibles to abuse because it's easy if you start drinking to just keep drinking drinking without really stopping to think about how much you're drinking if you order you know, if you buy a chocolate bar that's it's broken up into 10 pieces at least you have to stop and break off each piece before you put it in your mouth uh but with the beverage you know you can just sit there if you're thirsty and before you know it you know you've knocked back a bottle which uh for somebody who's not expecting something that strong could really be a pretty potent uh a pretty potent buzz yeah i think so mean, it's so, uh Start slow and
1: uh, start low and go slow adage definitely holds true and that's why I think you know for beverages to be successful they have to be low um, THC because if they're not it, it, you know it's like you don't pound Everclear you know there's no way that you, you want a 20 milligram or 30 milligram um, you know canvas beverage where all of a sudden you drink one don't feel anything you drink another and the next thing you know you're you're way way higher than you'd like to be you put two and a half milligrams in each beverage and you know you sit there and hang out with your buddies and drink three or four or five of them you're probably fine. You probably have a really nice buzz going and that's, you know, the intended effect of the same way you'd have, you know, three or four beers, you know, going to the bar. But that's that's the future of beverages and then it's going to come down to um to to taste. But again, until you actually have a
0: place to consume, nobody cares. Right. That's very true. And let me ask you this. Do you see a future uh, with beverages that have both alcohol and THC in them. I mean, in, in my future, yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, it's, absolutely. If, if, if I could, uh, if I could have a two milligram, eight uh, percent, you know, alcohol by volume beverage, I'd be all about it. I'd drink two of those in a night and call it a day. Do I think that the governments can allow for that? Um, probably not. I mean, it's again, you're 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 sticking a finger in a dike of the inevitable, right? So I can buy a six-pack here and I can buy, you know, a cannabis beverage there. And I can sit at my house and alternate between the two, but I can't actually mix them together. Give me one credible reason why not, because everybody's going to be doing it anyway, or everybody that consumes both, you know, cannabis and alcohol. And there's lots of people that, that only do one or the other. But for anyone that uses both, I, I can't think of a time I've been at a party where people are smoking weed that there isn't drinking going on as well. So it's, it, it's it's relatively ridiculous not to be able to have the, uh, the two form factors combined unless, like, the two regulatory departments that handle each can't get their act together to have some sort of cross-pollination as far as policy.
0: Well, but that's, you know, in our world, as we all know, it's that little group that, you know, controls everything. If you can't get them to agree on something, then it's all just talk. So, you know, it it, it just fascinates me to see where it's at and where it's going to go and and where it might wind up. And, you know, I just wonder then if, uh, you know, you want to have – you know uh, bourbon with thc does it still have to be made in kentucky and you know get the thc <laughs> down there uh you know in order to in order to keep it kosher as it were you know or, or champagne right thc champagne i guess we'll we'll find out somebody's going to be creative enough uh, a Bordeaux by any other name <laughs> that's right it'll be a whole new world for sommeliers. so always tons of uh fascinating and interesting stories again thanks to mj biz uh, for being such a great provider of, uh, of news information for us but we're going to turn to music now and before we dive back into this song uh, this concert that, that we're going to get to talk about in a minute it's always fun when we have a concert that either rob or i or both of us managed to be at and he was at this one so uh, we kind of get the insider's view on things which is really nice um, we, we do have to take just a moment and give a quick shout out to yet another musical legend that we've lost, uh, and another woman uh, who not only was a musical legend in her own right, uh, but in a uh, only you know Grateful Dead kind of way, had a real impact on the Grateful Dead and and Deadheads. Uh, the woman is Rosalie Hawkins. She was one of the original members of the Dixie Cups, uh, a group of three uh, black women who uh, started recording in the early 1960s and had a big hit with "Chapel of Love" and a couple of other tunes and uh, ultimately uh, recorded Ico Ico, which was a tune that uh, had been written, more or less, as, as near as anyone can seem to tell, by uh, James Crawford, uh, whose version dated back to the 1920s. Which was called Giacomo, wasn't it? It wasn't called Ico. Correct, it was called Giacomo, but somehow at the end of the day, the Dixie Cups and James Crawford's representatives all negotiated, and the Dixie Cups wind up getting uh, some sort of credit for the uh, uh, for the writing of the song, uh, but they recorded it in nineteen sixty five and it's a uh it's it's a great studio version, uh with great harmonies and, and they've they've got great voices and uh they they really infuse a lot of uh, Southern soul and style into it and um it's a great tune. What I love about it it doesn't really sound very much at all like the version we're used to hearing The Grateful Dead sing. But, of course, uh, uh, neither uh, Bonnie Dobson's um, uh, Morning Dew, uh, you know, compared to the version that Jerry plays. So I guess the dead will always have a little bit of uh, uh, artistic license with these things. But uh, nevertheless, a tune that was eventually covered by Dr. John and a whole host of uh, uh, of great rockers and, 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 and Southern musicians. Um, but uh, hats off and uh, thoughts with Rosalie Hawkins and her family. Uh, the other two members of the band, I believe, are still alive. Um, unfortunately, I don't have their names off the top of my head. Uh, one of them is Rosalie's sister, and the other one is her cousin. Um, and uh, uh, again, uh, condolences to the family—the uh, loss of another musical legend. If you go to uh, YouTube, you can find clips of it, and it's it's worth checking out.
1: Yeah, and it should be noted those guys started that band I think when they were like 14 or 15 years old. I think they had that hit before they were 18. So you know the the, the fact that they actually um, came up with something that's kind of as timeless as Ico is and Still to this day, when you think about sort of the uh, the Creole tradition of Mardi Gras um, and the different bands of Indian tribes that they were uh, making reference to, you know, their version is such a fun, playful sing-song version, which is, um, you know, so much different, as you said, than, you know, what the, the Grateful Dead's approach was on it, but, you know... I, I love the lyrics to that song, and I love the fact that lyrics don't have to remain the same. They can change every single time they sing them, as long as the theme is the same. Which is basically, I'm sending my guys out to check out your guys before the uh, you know to to gather information and, and find out what we can find to try to win this competition of you know who's the best costumed, who's the best uh, tribe. It's a it's a really you know fun, playful song about you know I'm better than you.
0: I think that's right. And um it, it is just one of those songs that that's always fun to hear uh whenever the band would uh choose to play it and, and, and get on with it and um I always loved it. in fact uh my second show ever, which was um out in Syracuse in uh nineteen eighty two and they came out of the space into an which to this day is probably the you know, my, my highest grateful dead moment of all time when all of a sudden there I was uh, you know, often in another universe already, and the Grateful Dead came out of space into this tune that my buddies had been telling me about, and, yeah, they don't play it very often, but maybe, and there it was, and boy, was you talk about, uh, you know, if there's a moment where I got on the bus, baby, that was it, you know, Neil was like, hands out for the fair, I'm like, I'm in, I'm all in, whatever it takes, let me in, um, oh, uh, here, I was just going to say one other thing, it, it is a great tune, Iko, and everybody covers it, and, I, and, and you really love it, However, the one that I heard I will tell you that there's one version of it that just never worked for me, and that was when my kids were young, my older ones, so back in the uh, early nineties early to mid nineties, and they were getting into whatever all the kitty pop was back at that particular point in time and one of the one of the hotter acts was a a, a youngster who I believe is still around doing music named Aaron Carter. And Aaron Carter on one of his albums that my kids loved. Don't diss Aaron Carter. Of, Come on, man. <laughs> put out a version of Iko Iko, and they thought it was the greatest. And I immediately took them downstairs, you know, and put on one of any five versions of it that I had lying around at the house at the moment. And I said, "Listen to this. Forget you heard that." And, hey, I, you know, Aaron Carter may be the greatest guy in the world, but that version of Iko Iko did not work for me. But uh, otherwise, uh, it's hard to find a version of it that 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 just doesn't work for you on a certain level. It's. uh and you're right. The beauty of it is the words can be whatever you want them to be. Yeah, for
1: all if you want a great version, um, I think the one that everyone points to is July seventh, nineteen eighty nine, from
0: JFK uh, in Philly,
1: and that version is just if you want you know Garcia's playful best, uh, it's as good as it gets. Yep,
0: yeah, that is a good one. And then the one I also like is uh, the one they played in front of the Pyramids in nineteen seventy eight, which is a much slower version of it with you know kind of spacey taking into account the uh, their surroundings and, uh, whatever other spirits might be in the air that night. Uh, but it's, it's a song that could do that. And, uh, it was always great to hear. Uh, and Jerry always was very, you know, having a good time when he sang it, you could always tell, especially when he'd, you know, really get down to some of those good hard Creole, uh, lyrics, you know, that instead of just, the, uh, some of the more, uh, standard ones that he always said. And
1: once, once again, you know, I think between that and between um, uh, "Man Smart, Women Smarter,"
0: <laughs> you know,
1: introduced me as a as a, a listener to so many different styles of music that you know I probably wouldn't have you know otherwise known. I've already credited the Grateful Dead for you know having me learn a lot of the old country artists, whether it's you know Johnny Cash or Merle Haggard or or um, Marty Robbins. When it comes to the Creole guys, I would have you know probably I would have figured out who Dr. John was over time. I would have learned Harry Belafonte over time. But it certainly accelerated my, you know, love of music that I would have otherwise not
0: known about until I probably went to New Orleans for the first time. Well, you're right, and and I, you know, could probably go through almost every single rock group in my uh, uh, collection of CDs at home, maybe with the exception of like the Who and Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones, you know, who I I, I got to know about or appreciate more, such as the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Uh, just by hearing uh the Grateful Dead cover their music and that was always a great way to do it. but I chuckled when you mentioned women
1: or 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 you could just listen to Nicky Hopkins and Billy Preston in between those two they they just they play with every single musician you just uh you just brought up.
0: That's true. That's true. Um, but but you made me laugh when you mentioned Women Are Smarter, because, you know, for my friends and I who really loved Ico and, you know, Women Are Smarter is fine. It, it, it's it, it, But it's a very, very similar sounding song. And, you know, one of the you know, when I was first hearing them, it was hard for me initially to distinguish which one it was. So we'd always hold our breath, hoping that it was Ico. And if it was women, we'd say fine. And, you know, we'd all we'd all play along with it. But, um uh you know at so, some point I, I I learned to make that distinction, uh, but women are smarter was always fun, and Bobby always played it to the hilt, so you know
1: i, I only distinguished it normally between uh, where it was in the set. you know, if it was opening a set, it was nine times out of ten an CO, if it was you know second or third song, nine times out of ten it was women. But other than that, you know, if you were to put the two songs in front of me, I've got as much chance of, like, figuring that out as being able to tell you, like, what the rule against perpetuities is. Yeah, please you know, don't so. give me a headache.
0: <laughs> For those of you who have been to law school, you don't understand. For those of you who have, you're welcome. Um, yeah, look, it's, I mean, there's a couple songs like that, though. I mean, it's a question of,
1: you know, like, you know, was Cumberland going to be Cumberland or was it going to be, you know, two other songs that, that, you know, sounded almost identical coming out of it. So, you know, there's a handful of them where you're, okay, I can't distinguish during the intro um, what this is going to be, but Ico is obviously, the, Ico Women Are Smarter is definitely the most obvious example. Of
0: yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think that there was a part of that that Jerry did intentionally, just, just gave him more flexibility, he could just play off to one or the other at the last minute. Uh, without really breaking stride too much or, you know, changing up the beat. So um, whatever, you know, unfortunately, he's not here for us to ask him. But if he were, we certainly would and uh, hopefully be able to get some kind of an answer. But let's move on, man. Let's 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 start talking about this Chinese New Year show in 1993. I saw I only was lucky enough to see one uh, run of Chinese New Year's shows, and that was back in 87. Uh, and I flew out to the West Coast to see my buddy Tommy and to go catch a couple of shows uh, in the uh, San Francisco Civic Center, which I guess is now the Bill Graham Center. Um, and uh, they were great fun. There was just a lot of fun. Uh, at that point, I had been to a few New Year's shows already and obviously wasn't the same, but it did have a lot of the same celebratory feel. And to see the, the, the Chinese dragon dancing and everything and the extended drum solo, that would accompany it was really really cool so chinese new year shows are always really fun for me but 1993 you know it's kind of a complicated year right i mean that's still uh you know well within the 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 framework before jerry's going to go two years uh and at this point in this show two and a half years later uh, but it is kind of you know much farther down the road and entering this era where uh you know you would go to a show and you weren't always quite sure what you were going to get um you know and Some nights you might get a show like this, which had a six song first set, which, you know, always left me a little bit sad. And not that they would really shortchange you on the music so much, but, you know, I I was always a big fan of the seven or eight or nine song first set, really give you a little variety and, and keep you going and everything. Um, But somehow, you know, as you go through all of this show and Rob, again, you can talk on this better than I, uh, they always wind up doing things that make you glad you're there.
1: Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. And I'd say on the three-night run on this one, I mean, as you said, '93 was kind of a weird year, especially the opening of it, because in the spring of '92, like the first shows of the year, introduced you know four or five new tunes. That's when so many roads came out and Karina and you know, victim or not victim the, a handful of new songs came out in '92, and then '94, <coughs> the first couple shows on the West Coast also introduced a handful of new songs. '93 Nin- didn't. You know, '93 these were the first shows of the year. It was coming off of um, you know, no New Year's run that year. And, uh, you know, you kind of had high expectations when you came in. You're like, okay, you know, it's nothing nothing too exciting. But there were some pretty good highlights that came out of uh, this run. Obviously, you know, I'd say that the the big one was that Carlos Santana came out on the third night, which was, a, I believe, a Tuesday night. It was a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday run. And Carlos played, um, you know, four or five songs um, in the second set and into the encore with him, including a, a Gloria encore, which is, you know, relatively rare, and having, you know, Carlos and, and Garcia do it is uh is always pretty exciting so you know different chinese new year runs you always knew you were going to get something special you know in, in 91 they had the chinese symphony orchestra come out and uh play with them so you, you could almost always expect some sort of a guest you know coming out for those shows but it was a question of what else was going to come with that but this run you know i, I started i started us off with the jackstraw opener of all three nights and uh you know they came into it starting pretty hot if you listen to the licks that we played in the intro but you know, maybe we should listen to some of the other exciting parts, which is on the third night, you know, Carlos sitting in and trading, um, trading licks with Jerry during Stella Blue is, uh, is something you don't hear too often. And there aren't too many people that get to say that they've gotten to sit on stage and, and you know, play Stella. I mean, it's like Steve Miller playing Morning Dew in Vegas with, with Jerry is another rare one that you very rarely get the ballads that are, that are played because he doesn't really want to give those up. But, you know, Carlos did a really nice job on his uh, interpretation of Stella, and I don't know if Dan's got a clip of that that we can listen to for a second. (laughs) ¶¶
0: This is a hallmark of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. We're not going to tease you about a great musical moment and not give you a taste of it. So, uh, you know, if we're going to talk, you're going to get to hear it. And, you know, hearing that makes me think of this. Before Jerry Garcia, uh, uh, before I became really aware of Jerry and his music, Probably the single guitarist you know who had the biggest impact on me and you know whose sound drew me to the music the most was Carlos Santana, and you know I I loved uh, the Who at that point and I loved the Rolling Stones at that point, but I didn't ever think of Pete Townsend or Keith Richards being a guitar player in the mold of Santana, who in fact was you know back in those early albums, you know probably as close to you know jamming out like the Grateful Dead as anybody else was, and it was just such a pleasure to listen to him see him in concert a few times and really just get to hear him take off and you know the idea that that Carlos is up on stage with Jerry you know who between the two of them are probably the two most distinctive sounding guitar players you know that I that I listen to is just it's either you're on the bus or you're not man either you're there that night or you're not but if you are it's a great place to be. Yeah for sure and yeah I got to see
1: Carlos play with the dead a few times um, but this is the only time where I got to see him sit in for four or five songs you know sort of the same manner that I got to see you know Branford play with uh, the Grateful Dead, and uh, anytime I got to see that collaboration is fantastic. And, and I'll tell you, you know, for the viewers out there, or the listeners out there that have a chance, if you really want to see Jerry and Carlos um, get it on, find the YouTube version of them playing the song Get Up Up from August 2nd, 1989, from Los Angeles' Biltmore Bowl. But that's one, if you want to see pure trading of licks back and forth between these two guys, uh, in a setting where it's really just Carlos and Jerry, there's no better um, uh, way to, to kind of get the full taste of it. But I'll tell you that, you know, the second best thing I can think of is probably this uh, this January 26, um, 1993 show from Oakland where you get a full taste of it for, you know, multiple songs at the end of the second set.
0: And, and it, it, what's amazing to me is, number one, you know, we all think of the Grateful Dead and the way they play their music and how it's, you know... It's just perfect, and yet then we see that a guy like Carlos, or you mentioned Steve Miller, I was at those Las Vegas shows as well, and they both really fit in almost seamlessly, uh, you know, as if they've been doing it their whole lives, and in fact, Miller did uh, play quite a bit with The Grateful Dead in the early days, and and Carlos and Jerry have, have played a number of times, and, and and I love the way that it, it enhances the song, right? It, it, it's, not, it's not even so much that you get less of Jerry, it's like, wow, you get more of this other good stuff, and it really gives us an opportunity to truly appreciate just how good Jerry can be when he's playing the background guitar for somebody like that, right? You know, he almost becomes the Bob Weir for a minute. Carlos takes over, but Jerry's still back there noodling a little bit, filling in the holes just right. And it's really, um, I think it's just, it's a great listen and uh, great call today. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, you know, it
1: wasn't just um, the Stella. I think he, he sat in and played the other one, Stella, Lovelight, and then the Gloria, So as I said, you know, there's a a lot to listen
0: to there for uh, for people that are Santana fans, Um, certainly worth checking out. Okay. Well, that's great. You know, and as always, of course, any show that we're talking about, uh, if we're taking the time to talk about it, that's as close to a recommendation, you know, for you to go find a way to listen to it as we can give you. Um, And the beauty of it is you will listen to it and, you know, you will hear stuff that we didn't talk about. Uh, stuff maybe that we've missed and that's always the beauty of this. You can go back and listen to the same show over five times and all of a sudden you know you hear something in the bird song or the knocking on heavens door um, you know where uh, you're like, hmm, where did that come from? why haven't I heard that before and then you know going forward from that point you can't miss it and um, uh, this is a great show. it's a great. Uh, example of the Grateful Dead during that period of time in their career, and, uh, and it's also the rare time where a women are smarter.
1: Open a second set, <laughs> completely, des- completely destroying what I said earlier that you know nine times out of ten it's gonna be an ICO. In this case, it was a uh, it was a women.
0: Well, there you go. Just to keep you honest, man, right? That's the way it always has to be. Otherwise, you know, just when we think we have them figured out, they surprise you with something. So. Um, you know, to this day. So that that's uh, that's all good, too. But uh, just I, I just want to uh, really quickly point out to people that, you know, we always try to find shows as best we can uh, that were played on the date that, that our podcast drops. So uh, this one's dropping on the 24th. So we're talking about January 24th, 93. There's a lot of good shows on that day. When I go back and I start looking around, you, you have the middle of the uh, historic 1969 Avalon Ballroom run where they pulled some of the material for Live Dead, we have uh, part of a run at the Honolulu Civic Center in 1970 that uh, uh, a run that got great reviews and uh, some say introduced Bill to the Hawaiian lifestyle that he went on to uh, uh, adopt and, and, and move into. 1971, and this is really a favorite of mine now that I started listening to it, a show at the Seattle Center Arena. And one of the good things about that show is it's 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 one of the shows, it may be the last show they play right before they slide into for the uh, the sixth show run at the end of February that we've talked about and uh, as a result that would make this the second to last show with Mickey Hart in the band uh, before he takes his uh, three or four year break and in the notes of this show they do in fact mention that uh, this show from January 24th 71 in Seattle is the last live duet uh, drum solo that Mickey and uh, Billy play until October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy four. So, uh, if you were there that night, uh, you really got in on some good stuff uh, that you know wasn't going to be repeated for a while. But again, that's you know the beauty of the dead. Either you're there that night or you're not. But January twenty fourth certainly seems to be a strong night in Grateful Dead history, and uh, the ninety three show is no exception. Yeah, for sure. And I think we, uh, when
1: we made the decision of which one to talk about, obviously our our decision was prejudiced by the fact that you know I was at one and none of us were at the other, and uh, and the other part of it is that it is just about to be Chinese New Year again, which I think this year falls uh, on either February first or second this year, and it's just a good excuse to uh, to say to our audience, Gong Hei Fat Choi which I believe is a terrible
0: way to uh, to murder the Cantonese language to, uh, to say Happy New Year in Chinese. And Rob, I just am praying to God that what you actually said was Happy New Year in Chinese and not some other clause you might have learned along the way from your friends who taught you Cantonese. Yeah,
1: no, I assure you that that might be the only Cantonese I know. So uh, that's as as good as I get. And uh, I tried to verify before I went on, before I said something that's uh, offending millions uh, in, in other areas.
0: Potentially but, billions. Well,
1: bil- billions, except they can't hear anything we say. And it's all censored. So, yeah, I think it, it might make it as far as Taiwan. That's, uh, you know, as far as we have to check our analytics now and see who's listening from the other side of the pond. But I will say, you know, Chinese New Year, I got to see it twice. Two things, you know, both times really look forward to it simply because of the pageantry, simply because of, you know, you know, especially in the Bay Area, which is a great place to do it. You know, I think New York or San Francisco are really the only places that it really make sense to do a Chinese New Year celebration for the Grateful Dead. It was just so much fun, and, uh, and I'm a huge fan of just the celebration of Chinese New Year in general. So to all of our um, Chinese listeners out there, you know, have a very happy New Year. Uh, that makes an easy decision for us to pick a show that corresponds with it.
0: Absolutely. You know, when you think back about it, you know for the for the casual deadhead, that was a really magical time to be in California, right? You'd have the New Year shows, then you'd roll into the Chinese New Year shows and then you'd roll into the Mardi Grass shows. and although they might do a little bit of traveling you know uh, in between or here and there, those were always you know pretty much on the schedule shows that you could count on right around the same time every year and yeah. make a whole pilgrimage of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, like the way you could expect you know a handful of shows in uh, in the Northeast in September, you know you could almost be guaranteed at least six nights in New York City you were pretty much guaranteed that December, January, and early February were reserved for, um, for the Bay Area, almost exclusively. And as I said, you know, that was the time where you know if they're going to release new material, almost like clockwork, you could expect that you know, there's going to be um, new stuff that was being dropped at those shows because that was one of the only times where they had large blocks of time off where they could actually get together and hang out and practice. Um, going into either the Chinese New Year or the Mardi Gras, so if you look at you know when when uh, new stuff was dropped, it was usually in those West Coast shows. Before they brought them on the uh, the spring tour on the East Coast, starting usually in early March,
0: but the the debuts would be would be you know Bay Area debuts. Well, in fact, uh, uh, in Jim's last show, he and I talked about the 1984 New Year show, which was my first. Where uh, on the one of the lead up shows, I don't remember which one they they dropped uh, Day Tripper. Uh, which everybody had been running around talking about forever and, and, and waiting to hear, and they finally played it. And then New Year's Eve in the third set, they broke out. Um, uh, Give Me Some Lovin' was just absolutely amazing, and everybody walked out of there that night, you know, singing the Phil beat, doo 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 and it's just, I remember sitting there as they're playing it, and my buddy was like, isn't this great? And every time Phil hit the string, it was like the whole room just started shaking. It was awesome. It was just great. Yeah, both great covers. And I can
1: tell you, Day Tripper, I don't think there's too many songs that Garcia played, albeit only briefly, that he was so animated, uh, especially when he kind of went into the... And I'd say the uh, the one I love, and there's a video of it, is from um, June 25th, 1985, from the Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Jerry's definitely very animated. He
0: is, you know, when he finds a tune he likes, he'll let you know, and and, and that's great. Yeah, it was funny because we'd been all, you know, still young in my deadhead career, and people were talking about, all oh, they're going to play "Day Tripper," they're going to play "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," they're going to, and they did play "Day Tripper," and a few years later, they did eventually get around to "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," and. Uh, maybe we'll find a good version of that one day and play it. That's a little bit trickier because some nights Garcia was really flat on that. And when he was, it wasn't necessarily the most exciting tune to listen to. But
1: uh. <laughs> as, as we realized trying to pick a show a few weeks ago, <laughs> we vetoed it based on the Lucy in the Sky. Oh, that's exactly. great. Well... I can tell you that you know I think we I think we picked a nice one. It's hard to find you know shows in in '93 that you know get the sort of same appeal that people expect to have from like an '85 show or from a '77 show or you know sort of different eras. But there are some gems from the uh, from the '90s, and as I'm like a product of the '90s uh, or late '80s, early '90s, there's plenty of stuff that I saw that you know I, I walked away as happy as anyone else that left that arena. And as we said before, that was really mid career. You know that wasn't that wasn't the end. That was the middle for these guys. So. Um, you know, with that, maybe we should uh talk about what we've got coming up uh for, oh, before we before we break today. I did want to send a shout out to our good friend uh, David Gans and wish him a very speedy recovery. He's been suffering with COVID um for the last couple days and he's been trying to get some tweets out to let people know, you know, kind of the state of, of how he's doing, but he appears to be on the mend, but you know, from all of us over here, um, you know, get get well soon, Dave, and thanks for all you do.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you know, and, and when I was listening to the uh, his show the other day with Gary and only gary was on i just assumed that at the time david was out traveling or getting ready to perform somewhere or maybe performing already um and and only just heard myself about his COVID. so absolutely anybody of course and certainly you know david is such an important member of the dead community and was kind enough to be on our show that uh he has all of our support and we will look forward to hearing him back in his normal place with gary on sunday afternoon so thank you for mentioning that i think that what i'm going to do at this point is hand it off to uh, rob and he's going to take you guys home and introduce the uh, final closing clip of the day um but thank you all once again for listening as always we'll look forward to talking to you again next week and uh, uh have lots of great things to be talking about then uh so in the meantime be safe enjoy and uh most importantly enjoy your cannabis responsibly rob thanks larry uh lots of fun again today
1: and uh i think appropriately is it's you know, getting to be a late afternoon in California. Um, I will leave you with the sun setting here in Western Skies with, you know, the, the end of uh, the first night of January 24th, 1993 from the Oakland Coliseum uh, with, you know, really good, clean Garcia licks on the "Knocking on Heaven's Door Encore. So with that, uh, we'll see you next week. Looking forward to uh, lots of fun shows coming up and signing off here from California. you know.